Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl and welcome to episode 10 of Cage Rage, a Nicolas Cage podcast. Look at that, we did it, we've made it to double digits. We took some weeks off in the middle but we're on the big one oh, it's our it's not our tenth birthday, is it? We've not been doing this for a year. We'll save that for episode fifty two, but enjoying it. Look at that. Did it, made it, committed to something, and now here we are. So how's your week been? Have you been alright? Have you been okay? Have you been good? Uh you'll notice I didn't do an intro to this one. Why, you might ask. Well I've hit record now. And I forgot to do it. Um, I use Audacity. It's not a complex program. At the same time, I'm too lazy to learn all the intricacies of it and how to use it. So that's the thing. Um, Week for me, alright. It could be better. could be worse. But finishing off the right way by watching Vampire's Kiss. Um, Finish this film in the last... 30 minutes in my time from when I'm recording this. What a performance. What a film. What a roller coaster of emotions for me, for the viewer, me watching it, and to be in it as well. Absolutely maddening. Um, and more than that, sometimes I'll look for, you know, little facts, little behind the scenes stuff just to go into, pad these little podcasts out a little bit and some of the stuff that I found out um, the stories behind this film which I implore you to go and seek as well um, there's an amazing um, article on the ringer.com published last year which is uh, <laughs> which is titled truly batshit the secret history of vampires kiss the craziest Nicolas Cage movie of all time and there is also um, someone who's listened to the director's commentary version of this film so that you don't have to over on filmschoolrejects.com uh, that's from 2015 with an article titled 47 Things We Learned from Nicolas Cage's Vampire Kiss Commentary so if you want to look me in the eye and tell me that this man is not dedicated to his craft when he's out there doing director's commentaries and giving you an insight into the process Look no further than this man. It's wonderful stuff to uh, to find out there. Um, now, the glorious thing about Vampire's Kiss, for me, um, is that some would arguably say that this is where the cult of Cage began. This is where a lot of the distinctions may have arrived. That um, I suppose it's unpopular opinion to say, oh, well, he's not that good an actor. He's not that great. But then you look at a film like this, where somehow this opinion has risen out of nowhere, and I don't know what you're on about. You're idiots. Now, going into this film, Nicolas Cage was riding this huge wave of momentum with previous films of the Cajun repertoire, like Moonstruck and Raising Arizona. Then we hit the big 8-8, two fat cages, 1988, when for reasons that can only be described as channeling acting techniques... Never known before, never known since, only possible through the capable hands of the greatest actor of our generation. 
he suddenly decided to get off the fucking charts. This film, some may argue after nine films of foreplay prior, was the true genesis, the real birth of the Nicolas Cage that we all know and love. And this is where the memes are born from as well. This is where all the agents and the big wig Hollywood companies truly started taking notice of your boy. Alright? If you've seen that meme, which is like him pulling that face and his eyes are really wide, this is where that one comes from. If you've ever seen the video on YouTube, Nicolas Cage losing his shit, it's a, a four minute long video of all the times Nicolas Cage has screamed at that point in his career. One of the first scenes where he's walking through the city going, Ugh. <laughs> I'm not even going to try and do it. Uh, that's where this one comes from as well. Now, you know, this isn't the first time or the last time that Nicolas Cage will play a character whose only characteristic is really insane man. But my God, does he do it well. Did you think he wasn't going to do it well? Was there, was there any doubt in your mind that he wasn't going to nail a role like that? Now, Vampire's Kiss is generously described as a black comedy horror film. Um, I'd... I've you know I've watched it now. This is actually the second time I've watched this film. I watched it maybe ten, fifteen years ago. Um, didn't get it then. I understand it better now. And at the time that it was released in eighty eight, Vampire's Kiss may have been described as a commercial flop. If you want to believe facts, because you can prove anything with facts, can't you? If you want to look at the numbers, barely made three quarters of a million at the box office or whatever. But it's gone on now to become a cult classic in a similar vein to The Room and one of those so bad it's a brilliant film because it's starring Nicolas Cage kind of ways. Now, as I said earlier, looking into some of this, um, wow, what stories. Allegedly, Cage's agent begged him to not do the film. At one point, Cage did drop out, but he went back into it. But the fact is, Nicolas Cage knows a good project when he sees one, and he dedicated himself to the movie. What a fucking champ. Now, Mr. Cage takes the role a thousand steps further than any other quote-unquote actor would have by bringing an almost unnecessary amount of physicality to the role of Peter Lowe he plays in this film. And looking into the uh, article I suggested earlier about the director's commentary highlights, uh, Nicolas Cage said that the role was brave to play, adding, I'm glad I did it, and it emerges as one of my favourite performances. Well, thank you, Nicolas Cage, because I'm happy. I'm glad that you did it too. So are the five people who listen to this. They're happy as well, because this is where the gold comes from. The film was written by Joseph Minion. He wrote the script on holiday and based a lot of it on a toxic relationship he was in with an ex-partner at the time. And don't worry, Joseph, he doesn't show at all. It doesn't come across negative at all. Uh, what I noticed, though, more than anything, there's a, a lot of similarities throughout this film to um, to American Psycho. Nicolas Cage's Peter Lowe and Christian Bale's Patrick Bateman. Both are, in ways, about capitalism and misogyny and this toxic masculinity and how that can warp these... Uh, young men, especially in positions of power, into these depraved monsters. Even though American Psycho wasn't published until 1991, the film wasn't made till the early 2000s. A lot of similarities to the characters between Bateman and Lowe as well. 
both unreliable narrators. You never really know what's real and what's fantasy with these two. And some reports say as well that Christian Bale's performance in American Psycho was actually influenced by Nicolas Cage's performance here. And let me tell you, it bloody shows. Um, Now, one of the... A lot of strange nuances about Nicolas Cage's performance in this film from, uh, as I said earlier, the unnecessary amount of physicality, the uh, the arm acting that he does, the choices that he makes. But this is what I'm on about. He makes choices. He does things other actors wouldn't dare do because he's brave and he's bold and he should be winning all the awards. And I'll take that to the grave. And then one of the parts of the director's commentary as well uh, Nicholas Cage said that uh, normally I don't like to let the secrets out, but I want to here because I want people to see this movie and rediscover it. Uh, now this is in regards to the voice that he chooses for the character. It's this very pseudo Transylvanian weird, is it an American's version of a posh British voice? Is it Cartman? No one really knows what it is. He would add that in some ways it was a nod to his father who chose at some point in his life to speak with a distinction. Um, He added it used to be this very continental sound, adding that he felt it appropriate for a literary agent in New York City, uh, which is Peter Lowe, he said agent, a literary agent as we said there in New York City. But Robert Bierman, who was the director of the film, said that the producers approached him after viewing rushes to express concern about the voice. But I'm glad that between them, Nicolas Cage and Robert Beerman, they had the artistic integrity, the fortitude, the guts, the the testicle, the iron will to say to them, no, this is what's happening. It's going to happen. Let this happen. And it happened. Now, in watching the film... Um, within six minutes of screen time um, and we had our first cage sighting in around about 15-20 seconds or so so it's a pretty pretty sudden caging that we see on screen there within six minutes of screen time there's already a raw dogging underway textbook cage and this time he's already shouted at a taxi driver he's already ripped his shirts off the buttons have gone everywhere He's brought a girl back to his New York apartment and then a fucking a bat flies in from the window. It's a bit early for a bat. I'm not going to lie, I laughed out loud when that bat attacked for no real reason. Uh, for some reason as well, we even get a camera angle from the bat's perspective as it quite frankly harasses this poor woman before turning its attention back to Cage. We never really see him get the bat out of the apartment either, but Cage's priorities were just on the pursuit of the hog. That's just the kind of character that he is. We're going to act like that wasn't expected at this moment in time. Along with the bat as well, just going back to the uh, director's commentary, um, the arrival of the bat in Peter Lowe's apartment triggers Nick Cage in the director's commentary to mention a bit of a scuffle he got into with the director about that moment in the film. He said, and I quote, It was important to me that the bat was a real bat, and I didn't want this remote control bat, and I kind of went off my rocker a little bit. Um, Now, he said the reason for this is because he's a method actor. When Nicolas Cage signs on to your film, don't don't half-heart it. You're going to go in the whole hog, 
which is kind of the MO at this point, or not at all. Apparently they had an artificial bat crafted by an unnamed effects guy who worked on Star Wars. Imagine that, you've come from Star Wars, a series of films that is quite well known for their effects and capturing the imagination. But Nicolas Cage is having none of that, and Nicolas Cage made his assistant go out into Central Park in New York City in search of a real living bat. God, what I would do to be Nicolas Cage's assistant for a day. Oh, the things I would see. The things I would see. But apparently that stalemate came to an end when the director convinced Nicolas Cage that if he was bitten by a real bat, he would most likely die. So the only way really to talk Cage down from the ledge is to just remind him of his own mortality. So there's there's something we've all learned today. There's something we've all learned today. Uh, and also as well, and I don't know exactly which scene this was because there are one or two uh, love-making scenes in the film. Um, apparently, at some point, Nicolas Cage asked to have hot yoghurt poured all over his toes for a love-making scene. Again, doesn't do half measures, and I cannot stress this enough. Don't worry about it. Uh, now, there's a subplot that goes on as well um, that merges more and more into the film as it goes along, where Peter Lowe, the character, he asks his assistant, uh, called Alva, to find this old contract from someone that they've got in the books. The contract was with them in 1963. Peter can't find it anywhere. He's put this um, thankless task onto Alva, and let's... You know, we'll get into it a little bit later, but it's not. It doesn't go massively well for her. I think that's a bit of an understatement. Um, so he's asking her and asking her again to find it and check it and recheck it and recheck all the files that he's looked at. And like any good boss in the eighties, he makes it absolutely entirely her fault because character building. If I had done nothing wrong, but Nicolas Cage told me that I had. I'd throw myself headfirst into an oncoming bus, all in the pursuit of pleasing Nicolas Cage Senpai. Now, while all of this is going on, Peter is also in the process of seeing his psychiatrist, and every time we see the psychiatrist, you know, let's put it out there, he definitely doesn't go off on a series of increasingly bizarre rants. He definitely doesn't admit to being aroused by fighting that bat from earlier. And even if that is the case, that is now the only origin story for Batman that I will ever accept. As I said earlier, there's a lot of similarities between Bateman and Peter Lowe. And as I typed this, as I was typing the little script that I sort of run from when I record these, I looked back at the screen, I'd taken it off for maybe 15 seconds tops, and I look back on the screen, and Nicolas Cage is in the throes of a second raw dog, and now this woman bites his neck. A vampire's kiss, just like the title. Get it? I mean, we're not even 20 minutes in, and this film is already moving at a pace that most mortal brains cannot even possibly conceive. There's still, like, 80 minutes left of this film, and I feel it's only because... 
I am on the journey to true Cage Nirvana and open to such wonders of the universe that I can even keep up to guide you through what some would describe as a hellscape. At the next psychiatry session, he talks again about the the raging horn he had for that bat and comes out with great lines like, I was a little drunk, plus I was horny. And look, here's the thing. Um, I can't judge that. I've been to uni. I've sent text messages. I've regretted those text messages immediately and then tried to pretend that they never happened. Totally been there. Been there, done that, lived with the shame and the apologies that followed to this day. Now, as it goes on, we've still got no luck on the contract front. And the guy who requested it in the first place, he's called in and he said, you know what? Don't worry about it. No rush. I realise I'm asking a lot. Just don't worry about it. But it doesn't stop old Peter Lowe. Oh, Pete, you got low, he got low, something, something, low. Doesn't stop him from absolutely lambasting Alva about it. Am I getting through to you, Alva? And look, it's not ideal. We don't all want our bosses to speak to us like that. Also, some solid arm acting. He throws that point out there like it's an absolute uh, right straight jab. Or I should say left straight jab, because that's the arm that he uses. But... Um, again, incredible arm acting on display here. He just wants to get the best out of his employees. Is that a crime? I don't know if it is. Now, after that, he also goes on to shout at some some women in a diner. Uh, apparently, the waiter in this diner scene was an actual cameo by Joseph Minion, the writer there. Um, and it also and also the shot features a couple in a booth played by producer Barbara Zitwer and an unnamed prop man again due to their extras budget being a mighty slim. Here she is overacting, said the director. Sorry, Barbara. So, if someone in the background was overacting, that means that Nicolas Cage's performance was award-worthy. Now, I notice as well that at this point, you know, Nicolas Cage has been, had, been feasted on a little bit by a vampire. His neck starts hurting. He runs away to use a payphone... Uh, there was also some mimes outside having a domestic. Now, I, I imagine that's some kind of symbolism about the silent wars that we all face, but I don't know. I got a B grade in media at GCSE level, and I'm all right at analysing TV and film, as you well know by now. But the first appearance of the mimes actually prompted the director in the commentary to reveal, I don't know what this is about. I don't know what I was doing. I haven't got a clue. So this is what I mean, people make choices. You can't always justify them in the world of acting, but, you know, it makes for great viewing. Uh, now there's a a woman at the start of the film who is attacked by that bat as well. He rearranges a date with her. He goes to meet her, but his mistress, this mysterious vampire lady who may or may not exist, we never really truly know if she's a vampire or not, uh, stops him takes him back to the bedroom to drink some more of his blood. Am I still entertaining you? Are you keeping up with me on this? Is this making sense? Because anyone else would have lost their brain cells by now and given up five minutes into this, but not me. I would never give up because watching Cage films exclusively has actually increased my brain size. Medically, doctors might say that my brain is swollen, but I say that all doctors who would say such a thing 
you quacks. Quack, 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 you absolute duck doctors. Uh, once again, Peter absolutely scolds Ava for the lack of contract. He chases her through the building. Uh, no one who is employed at that firm does a single thing about it. He leaps on a desk. I don't know who choreographed that. He does a little leap on the desk there before he runs into the toilet, but the lights are a bit bright, so he leaves her alone. Again, I don't, I don't understand. I don't. I don't. So after this, he just goes home. He sees a note from Jackie, the woman attacked by the bat, asking her, um, asking that he leave her alone. So he flips out. He goes crazy. He starts smashing up his apartment. His hair's all flopped around like a page boy from the 16th century. Um, and this scene, apparently, where he destroys the apartment, this got a bit more elaborate and violent as um, than they originally planned when shooting because Nicolas Cage broke almost every prop in the apartment set. Now, I say props. Turns out that none of the items were actually props. So it's a good thing they got it in one take because they didn't have the budget to reshoot this. The director would add to Cage, how I'd let you do this, I do not know. So as with the mimes, the director had no idea what was going on. And again, I don't want this to sound disingenuous, but it absolutely shows. Uh, now, in the, in, the, in the commentary, Cage added that he used to rehearse in his hotel room, which the director then asked him if he remembers the, and I quote, incident with the cat. Now, it seems that Nicolas Cage had his cat, Lewis, staying with him during the production, and the cat tore up the hotel room they were staying in, and Nicolas Cage, for whatever reason, would not allow room service to clean it up. Incredible. Incredible. What an absolute maverick of the form. Going on from that as well, in the next session with a psychiatrist, um, he's asking about the contract. He wants the psychiatrist to reassure him. He's like, oh, you know, it's got to be in the files. It's got to be in the files. And then the psychiatrist, playing both sides, suggests that maybe the contract could have been misfiled. It's a possibility, right? But obviously, Nicolas Cage entirely disagrees. What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file, according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z! Now I'm going to guess that the uh, the therapy scene in the 80s was a lot different because I've been to uh, sessions such as that where you just talk through some of the stuff that you're feeling and your problems. And I think in the accepted conduct of things, if I had ever kicked off like that, I don't think I would have been asked back for a session. But at least it's getting it out of your system. We all need an outlet somewhere. And at the end of the day, that scene was I... Fucking conic. So after this, he starts wearing sunglasses indoors. The office gossip says that he's so eccentric. How little you know. Peter speaks with Alva. He blames his behaviour on taking a bad drug. They have a little laugh about it, seem to find some common ground. But then he suggests that she do some overtime because she's the lowest of the totem pole. And I'm starting to think that maybe 
just maybe Peter Lowe is something of a misogynist. You see the classic behaviour, he's first apologising for his actions, and then he's doubling down like a classic man. I don't blame Cage, but I blame Peter Lowe. And from 44 minutes to 40 minutes, uh, sorry, 44 minutes and 6 seconds, I should say, uh, this is where that classic little meme face comes from. And if you look at Nicolas Cage meme, then I have a feeling, I have a little feeling, you know exactly the one I'm talking about. And this, <laughs> this next clip is just a little portion of where it comes from. And you have to do it. You have to, or I'll fire you. Do you understand? Drugs, they are a hell of a drug. And this, personally speaking, is why I will never, ever do overtime again. So later that night, his vampire mistress again yeets him about, sucks him until he goes into a completely cross-eyed trance in a purely vampiric sense, uh, the self-destructive circle of violence for you. Peter confesses his love for the lady vamp, but she keeps opening it back up and just thinking about it. Uh, that's going to scar. That is going to scar like nobody's business. So you're going to be a husk. That's what some people on the internet call, um, let me just check my notes here, getting that good suck. Um, answers on a postcard if you get the reference, because I don't, I don't think it is what I have been led to suspect that it is. Uh, now, going back to him wearing sunglasses as well, again, in the commentary, the director of Nicolas Cage mentioned how they argued about Peter Lowe's increasing use of sunglasses, with the director worried that they were shutting out the audience. In retrospect, he believes that Cage was correct, and that was a smart take on the character. You see, this is what I mean. Nicolas Cage making choices, coming up with these suggestions, and people are listening. People are learning that he's a method actor and he knows what he's talking about. So you listen to him. Let him write it. Let him produce it. Let him star in it. Let him direct it. Let him cater for himself. Leave him be, goddammit. Now this is one of the scenes that might uh, uh, gross out a few people. So the morning after, the officer's got that Friday feeling. But at his apartment... Peter eats a cockroach as if he is in a bush sugar trial. Now, when I was researching the uh, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff for the film, I discovered, in a surprise to nobody, that not only did Nicolas Cage improvise that scene, it wasn't even in the script. He ate a live cockroach for no real reason. Um, and apparently the script had just called for him to eat a raw egg. Um, you know, bodybuilders do it, it's doable, probably tastes a little bit slimy, a little bit icky, but it's doable, it's not much of a massive issue, but Nicolas Cage say, nah, I'm a kingpin of the method acting game, I've got something here that's going to shock the audience, and get them talking, give me a fucking roach, <laughs> serve me up a fucking roach, you son of a bitch, and he ate it, and he fucking ate it, so good on you. Good on you, Nicolas Cage, doing what you fucking want there. Um, Nicolas Cage, in the director's commentary, described it as a business... <laughs> I can't even get through it without laughing. He described it as a business decision 
because when people see the cockroach go in my mouth, it's like the bus blowing up in speed, spoilers, people really react, and it's like worth $2 million in special effects, and all I do is eat a bug, so it's good business. The director made Cage do a second take and eat a second bug, but ended up using the first take anyway. See, he got it in one take there. That's how good of an actor that he is. That's how method he is. And he even agreed to do the second one. Didn't have to. But he fucking did it. He fucking did it. So Alva calls in sick. You know, doesn't really want to go to work with all of this kicking off. And I can't say that anyone should blame her about this. But Peter goes out to find her. Takes a taxi to where she lives. And Alva admits that she wasn't sick. She was a little bit scared to return to work. But Peter offers a truce. He says, look, you know that I've been a bit stressed. To hell with the contract. You know, I've come out all this way. And if you'll just find it in your heart to come back with me. And she does. She gets in the taxi back with the the boss, with the Peter man. And then Peter. And leashes the old bait and switch. Ah, yes, the old bait and switch. The work's not just going to go away, Alva. It never just goes away. The goddamn contract is somewhere in those goddamn fucking files! Are you alright, Mr. Lowe? Shut up, bitch! Genuinely incredible. And also, if I was a manager, that's what I call motivation. <laughs> he also guilts her into spending nearly $50 in cab fare, and then he goes to a bathroom where he can no longer see his reflection, even though it's still very much there. Uh, what range of acting when you have to react to yourself, but you can't even work with yourself? D- does that make sense? It makes sense to me. Not my fault if you don't get it. Alva pulls another all-nighter to try and find that goddamn contract, because it's in one of those goddamn fucking files. And at the same time, Lady Vampire McGee is in his office, feasting on some C-positive blood. The C stands for cage, by the way. And finally, Alva discovers the contract, but Peter is losing his mind. Having an imaginary conversation with the taxi driver from the scene before... And the wife, even though he's never met her, and even though Alva's elated, you can see in her face it's finally over. I haven't got to deal with this fucking psychopath anymore. Peter still goes bonkers. He pursues Alva through the office again, again, twice. You've put it with that the first time, the fact you've gone back and it's happened again, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. They run down a comical amount of stairs, uh, but then Ava pulls a gun on Peter... She'd visited her brother previously and got some blank rounds from him just to try and scare Peter off. But Peter, acknowledging this change into a vampire that he's going through, begs her to shoot him, otherwise he was going to fire her. Uh, she fires some shots, but again, only blanks. Peter doesn't know this. She thinks He thinks she's just been shooting at the floor. And he grabs hold of Ava, seeing his mistress in her place. Um... And assaults her, sexually assaults her. Not good. Um, When she's unconscious on the floor, he takes the gun, puts it in his mouth, tries to blow out his brains. But again, not realising that the rounds are blanks, not real bullets. 
he can't kill himself because he thinks the bullets aren't working because he's an immortal vampire. Now, the only... It's a very dark scene, but the only upside to it, if we can call it that, is that we also get a masterclass in how to draw emotion and cry on screen. And not just a cry, but something something entirely feral and unheard of before or since. I have tried to cry this way myself, but I'm an emotionally stunted man, and I can't pull it off without looking like I'm disrespecting Nicolas Cage's craft. Incredible. Truly incredible work. But with that, he believes that his metamorphosis into vampire has become complete. And he sprints down the street with the giddy and quite frankly unhinged proclamation. I'm a vampire! 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 Look, here's the thing, the literary world, the world of publishing and agents and books, not for everyone. That's what I've learned from this film so far, Amaroni and Aharim. He runs back to his apartment in the same weird way I think I would probably run after lockdown ends, when all I've done for 90% of it is sit down. Massive strides, getting as much air as possible. He then destroys his room and cocoons himself under his sofa, um, but his little head's sort of peeping out as well. So he's, he's basically tried to use his uh, his sofa as um, like a blanket almost, like a little uh, a little coffin, a little coffin kind of thing. Going back to the the sound clips from just now, um, Cage. First of all, with the gun scene on the boohoos, Cage was frustrated with the prop gun during the basement assault scene, but the director had to remind him that a gun with blanks could still actually kill him, um, which was smart because the same thing happened to Brandon Leaf only you know five years after that. So Nicolas Cage channeled his irritability into challenging himself to say boohoo in a way that didn't ultimately sound stupid. And I think on the evidence provided, it didn't at all. And then in the scene where Cage is running down the street after the assault in the basement, they had to reshoot it because Nicolas Cage was running too fast for the camera. Cage allegedly told the director, well, if you want me to run slow, I'm going to run like this. And that's the run, the weird run that made the cut. It's not quite... It's some. It's somewhere between a Naruto run and running like you've shit your pants, in my opinion. So Cage caught a lot of criticism from people saying it was over the top, but that Cage gives the criticism no weight at all, going on to say, over the top is one of those things that doesn't work with me because I don't believe in such a thing. It's just stylistic choices. You see? You see what I mean? Like you, Some people want to debate me on this and say, you know, when he's Daryl, when you say he's the greatest actor of all time, you don't actually mean it, though. But there's no such thing in Over the Top. It's just a choice. He can make his choice. You can make your choice. Your choice is wrong, but it's fine. It's absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. 
So now armed in the knowledge that he is a vampire, for better or worse, and back in his apartment, he has to practice some of those vampire techniques. He bites a pillow, and in the director's commentary, um, Robert Bierman had to explain to Cage the slang meaning of pillow biter. Because uh, Cage, you know, he doesn't concern himself with all this slang, he keeps it to the dictionary definitions. Peter Lowe then uh, get, has to get some vampire teeth. He realises that his pitiful little human mouth bones, his little teeth in his gob, not going to be up to the task. So he goes to a store uh, to get some fake dentures, goes to buy some $99 fiberglass, um, but you know, a bit too expensive for his tastes, so he dials it back a bit. Keeps it 100 and gets some $3, some $3 plastic vampire teeth before then uh, just crawling on his hands and knees out of shot. Amazing image. Uh, and I now officially launch my movement to rebrand Halloween as Cage Wiener. After this, he books another appointment with his psychiatrist and he starts chasing a bird around, um, a pigeon, which is actually something I, um, I've seen someone do in Leeds City Centre once. Um, so it's a thing that happens. I'm not going to act like it doesn't happen. Uh, and going back to the commentary, Cage was quite proud of his ability to catch a pigeon in the park scene, but Robert Beerman shatters his illusion by revealing that the birds were drugged. Um, and then he brought him back down, crashing down to solid ground by saying to Nicolas Cage, did you honestly think, hey, I'm a really great actor, I can catch pigeons? Wow, fuck you, Beerman. <laughs> God, what a, what a, what a lie to keep from someone for all that time. Can you imagine that? Jesus. Uh, but it doesn't matter because, <laughs> fuck's sake, it doesn't matter because he takes the bird back to his apartment, plucks the poor fucker and he eats it raw, a complete raw birding. And you wouldn't see a technique like that on MasterChef, which is exactly why a maverick like Nicolas Cage would win MasterChef. So up yours, Greg Wallace. And John Turow. Um So I think here I had maybe 30 minutes left of the film. I was trying to think to myself, you know, how do you describe this film to someone who hasn't seen it before? And the best, the best way I can think to describe it is um, when you wake up and you have a terrible hangover. And then you get this feeling of existential dread as you slowly remember the things you said and did the night before. Vampires kisses that feeling. So as we move into the final 30 minutes of the film, uh, Nick Cage literally punches a bouncer in the gut to get into a nightclub. It's overcrowded and it's loud and I felt anxious watching that scene, but at least it was the 80s, so on balance, I'd have hit a doorman to get into that club as well. Uh, Peter's got his teeth in, he's gliding across the floor, looking both out of place and incredibly hip. Nicolas Cage said he was in a really strange mood uh, that night of the club scene, and he recalls punching the doorman a little bit too hard, but blames the director for directing him to actually hit the guy. So, um, that method acting, through and through. Uh, I mean, now I know earlier I'd already made the uh, Patrick... Bateman analogy, the comparison but you think when you flash forward to 2000 when that film was finally made and I'm thinking there's no way that Nicolas Cage didn't actually audition for that role and I say curse you Christian Bale 
for taking that role away from him, taking that role away from us. You are not a friend of this podcaster, no matter how many times you hit me up on Twitter, at cage underscore podcast, on Instagram, at cage rage pod, uh, on the YouTube channel, cage rage podcast, to Nicholas Cage podcast, on Spotify, cage rage podcast, and on the Kofi page, kofi.com forward slash Daryl Edge. Um, I won't let you on. You're not a friend of the podcast, so stop asking me about it. Back at the club, Peter finds a woman alone in a back room. He charms her with the old lashes, gives her an old little chomp. She's, um, you know, tolerating it, and I'll, and I'll give her that much. Um, the woman in this scene was actually played by uh, director Larry Cohen's daughter, so a little bit of inside scoop for you there. Um, and then he and then he bites her neck and kills her. Uh, roller coaster of emotions. He must have practiced on that pillow for bloody hours. Uh, Peter Regis sees his mistress uh, Rachel, who at this point I learned that was her name. Um, probably should have added this in about thirty minutes ago in podcast time, but here we go. You know, you live and you learn. Um, but then the mistress she calls Peter pathetic, spits in his bloody face takes his teeth um, in a technique that can only be described as treat him mean, keep him cagey and she thumps him off to a, for a guy called Donald who is uh, what I would describe as a chode and if your name is Donald I would ask you with kindness and respect to go and have a word with yourself heartbroken he pursues Rachel but then the woman he runs into doesn't really seem to recognise him. Um, so this goes back to what we were saying earlier, how uh, we don't really know if he's actually seen a vampire, if it's all been part of his deteriorating mental state. Now in that scene where he's degraded by Rachel, uh, the actress who plays Rachel uh, told the director that to get into character, she really wanted to hate Peter Lowe. And she asked the director, you know, is it okay if as part of the scene I actually spit on him? The director said yes, but no one warned Cage, so he's actually getting spit on in that scene. So, um, incredible stuff. So he gets dragged out of the nightclub, kicking and screaming. He's yelling at everyone, look, you've got to look at her teeth, look at her teeth. But he's laughed out of the building, no one gets it. And he's walking around until sunrise, where he's blinded by the sun. And he's yelling for the world to kill him. And again, been there, done that, like you know... You get those uh, those delicate mornings where you go to the curtain, you throw them open and the sunlight absolutely reaps you of your soul. It's exactly like that. So as um, Peter Lowe is walking around the street towards the end of the film now, he breaks off this part of a wooden pallet in stake form. He's begging people to stake him and take his life. But at the same time, Alva, who's recovering from her trauma... She's making her way to Peter with her brother to sort of end this whole madness once and for all. Like I said, Peter's walking around the street at the end. Uh, he's he's clearly mad. He's talking to himself. Uh, the shots here are filmed at a distance. Going back to the commentary, the people walking past him, they're genuinely normal people who have no idea that a film is being made. Um, and the director said in the commentary, they take no notice of you. That's what's interesting. Nicholas Cage agreed and notes that 
we've all seen people like this on the street and he's creeped out when they become verbally violent. I'm going to show you a little clip of the uh, whatever noise you want to call this right now. Again, genuinely incredible, right? Um, I apologise if that was a little louder than intended, but um, you didn't have to watch the film, so fuck you. <laughs> I don't mean that. I absolutely don't mean that at all. Um, so he's walking around like some fucking banshee, and uh, there's blood all around his mouth and down his shirt. Uh, I mean, what commitment to the scene, though, considering people in that shot were not paid extras and uh, no one just tried to apprehend him for being a lunatic. Um, now I might, and I say might, this is a very strong consideration, might dress like that for Halloween myself. And I bet that maybe, just maybe, two people will get that reference without me having to explain it. They might think, oh, is this Shaun of the Dead? I've not seen it for a while. And I could probably say yes, but I wouldn't because I'd be doing Nicolas Cage a disservice. Um, so towards the end, he has a dis, uh, this delusion where he's imagining a conversation with his psychiatrist. He's saying that um, if he just falls in love, that's going to solve all of his problems. So he imagines meeting Sharon, who likes the same things that he does. Long walks, poetry, Japanese food, while also casually absorbing himself from being a criminal and assaulting Ava a few nights ago and murdering a woman the night before, like it's some kind of church confessional. They all shrug it off like a couple of old pals. Um, he's rambling at this point like Donald Trump, so it, it isn't hard to imagine that the president is a fan of Nicolas Cage based on his speeches. He takes imaginary Shannon back to his apartment where Alva and her brother have been laying in wait. So Alva's brother follows Nicolas Cage into the apartment and Cage puts on a masterclass of him arguing with yourself, arguing with a figment of your imagination. And it is a shame that Alva's brother breaks up the whole thing here because um, it's phenomenal work. So at the end, Cage is exposed. He holds up the the, uh, the stake to his chest. Alva's brother drives it in there. Uh, Cage screams. He dies. And this makes it the first time in Cage Rage history, in Cage film history, that Nicolas Cage has died in a role as well. Um, so with this pivotal scene, this emotional high point of the film, Cage said he struggled with how to perform that death scene at the end, adding, it's one of the biggest moments for any film actor. I knew I just did not want to die quietly. I was sick of quiet little deaths. Naturally, quiet little deaths are such bullshit. You scream. And then it ends with uh, him seeing one last time the vampire mistress and the director, um, again, having no fucking idea what he was doing with his film, adds that he isn't sure why he added the final shot of the vampire mistress. Uh, perhaps it was it that the ending gave it another edge. He asks Cage for his thoughts, and Nicolas Cage says, and I quote, Personally, I think that once he dies and the hands open, that was it. And they both agree. And the, the director's commentary comes to an end. 
the film comes to an end. Um, and if this hasn't inspired you, if nothing else, to listen to more Nicolas Cage director's commentaries, then I don't, I don't know what to tell you. There's also some of the highlights that Film School rejects notes from the commentaries as well, such as Nicolas Cage saying, I think that people might wonder what that voice is I'm using. I wasn't the most pleasant person to be around while shooting this film. Some of these movies, um, without mentioning names, are direct rip-offs from my certain family members, which goes to show you where I came from. This expression on my face is just absurd. And going back to the meme face that we mentioned earlier, uh, Nicolas Cage's motivation behind that, just to see how big I could get my eyes. Incredible. And I think the director said it best when he said, and I quote, No one really understands what this movie is about. So if you don't understand what the movie is about by now, then I don't know what I can possibly tell you after this. Um, so as the credits were rolling, I think we've all we've all been on a journey with this one. Like I say, this is the film that really launched the the cage. Well, you know, not to be a pun here, but the cage rage. This is one that has really put it out there, put him into the lexicon of insane, but also genius actors. Um, I did also want to note at a complete side point here that the credits refer to the cast as the players, as if trying to fool us all that this was some kind of entirely serious play. I mean, sure, this is no Phantom of the Opera, but then again, Phantom of the Opera is no vampire's kiss. So take that, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, and also, because I haven't mentioned him, um, the three fuck yous of this episode. Fuck you number one, Christian Bale. Fuck you number two, Andrew Lloyd Webber. And just for the sake of consistency, fuck you number three, Ian. So with that, <laughs> so with that all said and done, that brings us to the end of episode 10 of Cage Rage and Nicolas Cage podcast. Thank you again for listening. If you have been, if you think anyone has a spare 40 or so minutes and wants to listen to this bullshit and you want to share it around, I'd be entirely in your debt and very, very grateful for any more ears that want to come on board the journey to true Cage Nirvana. Again, you can follow on the outside on the social medias, Instagram, at Cage Rage Pod, Twitter, at cage underscore podcast we're on youtube as well i know i said i'd put the videos up still haven't done it i've had a busy week i've been playing the last of us too and there's the Kofi page if you want to help donate um or just want to think it's there's a monetary value in this completely up to you your choice um i'm not going to put the pressure on to do it that for to, to do anyone to that you know stuttering brilliant but all i will say on an absolute um guilt enforcing bottom note is that I did have to buy a VPN just so I could watch the film this week and that's how fucking committed I am to this podcast and you the listener because I give a fuck about you I give a fuck about you and don't you forget it god damn it I'm your boy and I'll always be your boy but we'll see you next week for episode 11 of Cage Rage Nicholas Cage podcast and until then keep on keep on caging uh, bye.